Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. The Oval Portrait by Edgar Allan Poe, first published in 1842 under the title Life in Death, and uh, substantially changed, and then uh, subsequently published in the version that we're reading today. I, I did go back and read the original, and I wouldn't mind talking about that a little later on, but why don't you give us a summary of the story, Eric? In the uh, in the form in which it is best known, and I must say um, admired, I think it's a terrific story. Uh, we we wind we see uh, a narration effectively in two parts. It begins the chateau into which my valet had ventured to make forcible entrance. And then it goes on. It's a great first sentence, which I'd love mm-hmm. to have us um, look at in depth. Um, it begins with the story of a fellow who is suffering from some nameless wound. He's desperate. His, uh, his servant uh, gets them into a recently abandoned, or so they seem to think, um, chateau, it's a word for castle in French. Um, and they go up to a small room at the top of a turret of this castle, the chateau. And in that bedroom where our main character is, uh, is presumably recovering or at least um, allowing himself to rest, he finds um, when he lights, when the candelabrum is lighted, um, that there are portraits, there are paintings around the walls. And he finds a book that describes the history of each of the paintings. At that point, we stop getting the narration and we get the description of one of those paintings. Mm -hmm. And the last line of that description, in fact, is the last line of the story. So the story breaks into two parts. One is a first-person narration, and the second is what that first-person narrator read, and he never tells us his response to what he has read. So we're left to construct what we think the story as a whole might mean. The story itself um, that he is reading, the story of the painting, is that of a painter who married a woman and was so taken with the task of painting her that he made a picture of her that was in fact incredibly lifelike uh, or lifelikely in the 18th century word that Poe uses. And I won't say the ending because I want to know what you think of the story and uh, maybe we'll hold back that ending for a moment or two. What do you think? Okay. Well, I, I love this story. I, I love to read it. I love to read it aloud. I any chance I anytime I get a batch of new students I I want to lay it on them and <laughs> make them read it with me because it is so wonderful and one of the things that is so wonderful about it and that is in the original publication as well as this the more common and I think improved version um is that it is a story with a frame right 
<laughs> not just because of the title, the Oval Portrait, and the portrait in the story has a frame, indeed, that is mentioned. But I think that the frame is even more interesting than than the the painting. <laughs> that is, I think that the the framing of the story about the story is even better than the the story that we get at the core of the story, which <laughs> is kind of funny because it traditionally, you know, in a narrative like um, with a frame around it, uh, so. An example would be the turn of the screw, where you have uh, some people at a dinner party talking about ghost stories, and then one of the characters says, oh, I heard a ghost story that'll be better than all of those. And then he tells the story, which is the substantial portion of the novel. And then it's uh, concluded with a, and that was the end of the evening, and everyone went home kind of sad. Right? Is that true? Uh, I thought of the. I think that that it, think, it does have. I a, think that's not so. I think the end of the story is the end of the novella. You may be right, and I think you that's. Know. I think that's very important because there are, when we speak about frames in narrative, there are full frames, uh, mm. stories that begin in the frame, then we go off and we have the story, and then we come back to the to the main frame. The time machine is like that. Mm-hmm. Um, which is narrated by this outermost narrator. Then we also have front frame stories like the Oval Portrait, where we get the framing story that sets up what we're going to get, and then we get the story, but we never come back out to the frame. And I think the turn of the screw is like that. And then we have you, you back. Be right. I beg your pardon. You may be right, and I think the time machine is a is a even better example. Well, the time of machine is a full traditional frame. frame. Right, that's the traditional full frame, and then of course you also have back frame stories where you've got the story, and then at the end you've got something like "and then I woke up" or you know right. whatever to put it retrospectively into a frame. Um, the oval portrait is a front framed story. Right. And I think and that's that's important. But I having got the terms out there, please uh, tell us how you how you view the framing. Well, I, I, I think that the title uh, Life and Death is not as good uh, as the Oval Portrait, in part because uh, the Oval Portrait shows that it's going to be a framing story. And yet it doesn't have that back end. And it leaves us pondering what's going on. And it makes us think back about that frame subconsciously or consciously and it improves the story immensely one of the things that is distinguished usually uh, about stories with frames is that the frame is much much less substantial than the story itself that it's framing and that is not the case with the oval portrait the oval portrait runs three pages generally and the first two pages are the frame and then the final page is the story and that substance, substantial framing, I think, is part of why I love it so much. There's uh-huh. so much uh, that goes into this situation. And one of the things I, I've thought about this story, you know, many, many times over many, many readings. And one of the things I just thought of this morning in rereading it was that I just love 
the opening line, as you say. I'm going to read it in full, and I just want to point out how many awesome things are going on. It The chateau into which my valet had ventured to make forcible entrance, rather than permit me in my desperately wounded condition to pass a night in the open air, was one of those piles of commingled gloom and grandeur which have so long frowned among the Apennines, not less, in fact, than in the fancy of Mrs. Radcliffe. And this has... Um, so many things going on in it. I I use a, a writing technique uh, with my students that I call the CLAIM, C-L-A-I-M, which has is an acronym for character, language, illusion, imagery, and message. This has all of those things. It does imagery. It has an illusion in it. It gives you idea of who the characters are and what they're doing. Anytime you have at least three of those things, it's going to be rich. This has all five. But on top of that, it gives us the sense that already something's wrong. They had to force their way into a castle. And when we think about that in the substance of the story, thinking of this turreted room with the paintings all hanging on the wall, and then the story of that painting that is the title, the oval portrait, in that book, we come to start thinking subconsciously at least about why that castle's empty and that is the other side of the frame for me when we get finished with the story the story is not finished poe still has us working it through in our own minds i agree um the uh i think it'll help to remember that the the last line as we now see it the the story that were told about the painting, not the viewing of the painting, the, the story that the narrator reads in that little book um, tells us of a bride of a painter who is so passionate about his painting that, in fact, she is unable to see his countenance. She is out of countenance with him and he with her which has a beautiful double meaning that is they don't she doesn't get to see his face because he is behind the painting and mostly he's painting as he uses her as a model and in that metaphorical sense he no longer is as passionate about her as he is about the painting that he is making using her as a model as time goes on he actually looks at her less and less and less and then there were two final two final touches that need to be made. We're told one on the eye and one on the mouth. And when those are beautifully symbolic, um, the mouth could be used for kissing and for nurturance and the eye for gazing. And what we have here is the, the painter who takes full possession of his wife through his gaze. He turns her into an object and in looking at her, when he puts those final brushes strokes on and then the brush was given and then the tint was placed. And for one moment, the painter stood entranced before the work which he had wrought. But in the next, while he yet gazed, meaning at the painting, he grew tremulous and very pallid and aghast and crying with a loud voice. This is indeed life itself turned suddenly to regard his wife, she was dead, it says in italics, and there are no more. 
No more words. That's the end of the story that we get to read. Now, as we've read what's going on, um, the painter pays continually less attention to what he to his wife's condition. We're told that she's becoming paler and paler, but he would not see it as much as he is gazing at her. He is selectively refusing to see that whatever it is that he's doing with his painting is drawing life away from her. And I would like to propose that he knows this, that he is invading her. He is sucking out her life force because when it says while he yet gazed, he grew tremulous and very pallid and aghast, a word that's cognate with ghost and Mm -hmm. crying out in a loud voice. This is indeed life itself. Why would he be aghast if this is in praise of his painting? If he did not realize that he has wrought this painting at the expense of his wife's life, which he then confirms by turn suddenly to record his beloved, she was dead. So th- this ending is one of male appropriation of females. That first That first uh, sentence that you read, Jesse, my valet had ventured to make forcible entrance into this chateau. Well, you know, um, if you think of a chateau as a as a, a protective enclosure into which one might go, you can begin to see the sexual possibilities here. And in fact, the narrator, as is typical of Poe's narrators, doesn't want to take any responsibility for what he might have done wrong. So he doesn't make forcible entrance. Mm -hmm. It's his servant who does it for him out of just consideration for this unnamed wound. Why is he desperate at all? Now, the, the servant we later find out is named Pedro. So he has a Spanish name, uh, a Spanish name that translates to Peter, the rock upon whom I will build my church. And this narrator who allows himself through his high authority to be forcibly installed at the highest point in this castle, this hubristic man who may think of himself as godlike, at least in his class position, as opposed to his lowly servant or whoever might have been in that castle, He is appropriating everything around him. That first sentence gives us the whole idea of Orientalism, of the exotic East. We have, from an English language viewpoint, the the fancy words like like chateau, right? We have uh, the Apennines as the location. That's the the mountain train, the mountain chain that runs down the spine of Italy. And in fact, there's a reference here to Anne Radcliffe, who is one of the great writers of Gothic fiction. Gothic fiction is named after medieval architecture, which is known as Gothic, and is named that in the 18th century when it is already falling into ruins. So there is the whole backstory of the genre of gothic fiction, of illegitimate mar- illegitimate sexual relations, of curses, of Catholicism and its, its popish superstition viewed from the standpoint of English and American Protestants in the 18th and 19th century. Uh, all of this is going on and it's a way of taking over the lives of others specifically the poor, innocent, and the word obedient is used in the story, females. So 
the man, the narrator, goes into the bed, which itself has black fringes around it. It's a four-poster. He penetrates her bed as he's penetrated her house, and he rapes her with his eyes as the painter had done. In fact, this narrator is no better than the painter. (laughs) So now, if that's making sense, I want to go back to what you were saying about the frame. We're told that the painting is in the vignette style. And I don't know uh, in the groups that you speak with on a, on a regular basis, but I know growing up um, in New York, the word vignette was most commonly understood by, by me and my school, schoolmates as a small piece of narrative. But in fact, that's not what it is. Um, It is, of course, what it is, but it has an older meaning, which continues in art history. The vignette style is a style in which something that is painted sort of fades off into the background. So if you think of an etching of a face being etched and the lines getting thinner and thinner and thinner, what a vignette style of portraiture does is eliminate the boundary between art and life. Hmm. Now, what we see in this story, that is the whole story called the oval portrait, is front framing. So we never get the back frame. Mm -hmm. In fact, what Poe is doing is creating a vignette because what looks like is inside the world of art fades out and becomes just part of life. If one were to ask thematically, what are the crucial questions here? Many of them would turn, I think, around the competition between the beauty of art and the beauty of Eros, between the work of being a painter or an artist or critic in the case of the narrator reading or writer in the case of Poe, the the claims of the beauty of art and the claims of the beauty of romance. We have art and eros, and they are seen as competitive in the story the narrator tells, in the story within the story that the narrator reads, and in the story that Poe himself has written, which is one of the reasons I think it's such a great story. It says, this is as true, just going back to that first sentence, this is as true no less in fact than in the fancy of Mrs. Radcliffe. From that very first sentence, Poe is letting us know that the life and art distinction is to be obliterated, that will, the, the conflict that's going on here, in fact, is real. And if, in fact, art becomes life itself, mm-hmm. then people become dead. That's it. It's great. Uh, <laughs> I, I like your uh, reading of what's going on. There's so m- this is such a deep and rich story. Um, <laughs> one of the things that, when you think of that gothic allusion uh, to Mrs. Radcliffe and this this pile of stones frowning among the Apennines, um, <laughs> often there's a uh, dead wife or uh, dead husband or something inhabiting the castle, haunting it. Sometimes they're literally locked in the attic. In this case, we've got them, somebody, some ghost locked in the uh, turret. And 
thinking about that abandoned castle and thinking about this this man who's somehow wounded we don't know if it's a, a belly wound a leg wound or a mental wound he is laying in this abandoned castle that his servant has opened for him and seeing this painting hung upon the wall and finding this book and I had a flash at some point in reading that that the the solution to why the castle had been abandoned is that in his madness at seeing his wife die in killing her, he'd run out of the castle and that his servant had gone and collected him and returned him to the castle and put him in his bed. Ah. And he's forgotten the trauma. Um, This is uh, not the perfect reading, but I think it's, it's well within the purview of the story, given the, the, the way the frame is so beautifully done. Another amazing thing that I, I love about Poe, he has repeated motifs and images that he, he uh, loves to do. One is from a poem we've done called Dreamland, in which I will quote from memory roughly. Um, there is a scene in, which, in that poem in which the, the king of dreamland has forbidden the uplifting of the fringed lid right you're not allowed to open your eyes in dreamland um the only way to see it is with your eyes closed and when our hero or main character some have speculated that this is a woman by the way which i think is probably not right given that he has a valet um but it's possible i suppose if this hero male figure is uh, laying in his bed or a bed, moves the candelabra for some reason, suddenly sees this portrait of a beautiful woman, and he tells us that he closed his eyes so that he could see it aright. He closes his eyes and deliberately holds them closed so that he can see the image aright. I glanced at the painting hurriedly and then closed my eyes. Why I did this was not at first apparent even to my own perception, but while my lids remained thus shut, I ran over in my mind my reason for so shutting them. Then he goes on to explain, It was an impulsive movement to gain time for thought, to make sure that my vision had not deceived me, to calm and subdue my fancy, there's that word again, for a more sober and more certain gaze. In a very few moments, I again looks fixedly at the painting. This is actually echoed earlier in the frame when he has Pedro close the heavy shutters of the room, his explanation being, since it was already night, and to light the tongues of the tall candelabrum to bring light back to the room. And then he says he has Pedro throw open far and wide the fringed curtains of black velvet, which enveloped the bed itself. There's this closing and opening of things that allow you to see or not see. Shutters for the turret itself, a rounded turret in my mind, and the bed curtains, the bed uh, coverings that are black, which block light. I just I think this is so, such an amazing closing and opening that we see echoed again, and it leaves us at the end of the story seeing that final line: "She was dead." 
leaves us blinking. I like that. I, I like seeing that uh, there is that that precise combination between the eye and the mouth. The mouth, of course, can be looked upon as oval also, an open mouth. Um, mm. Of course, you know, one thinks of oval portraits as having the long axis vertical, but um, a mouth, not. But, but maybe not, especially if one were lying down. Uh, one's mouth could be looked at in any way. Uh, one, I, 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 I am keen on seeing this association between the the oval eye, the the opening and closing of that black fringe, and uh, and eros, uh, because we see not only the the opening of the bed, the the, the black fringes, um, as perhaps being. Uh, reference to other possible um, black fringes. Uh, we're talking here sexual imagery, obviously, but we see that very same same image in the case of in the story called "The Facts in the Case of Monsieur Valdemar" mm-hmm. by Poe, in which again someone who has sexual difficulties and is at the point of dying is in fact in a four-poster bed and has got has opened the black fringed curtains. Um, as you point out, there are repeated themes in Poe and the, the presence of a, a dead lover um, or a love that by itself causes death is one of those great themes. I think that Poe is in extraordinary control of his material, but I think that it, his material, in fact, also gets beyond him. It, things are <laughs> happening unconsciously. Uh, mm-hmm. to, to, to pursue the first point, um, he is well known for his essay on the construction of the short story, in which he says that a short story should be thought of as sort of a machine that is meant to create emotions that are discharged completely in the last line. So that last line here, she was dead, uh, looks like, yep, Poe's been meaning to do this. And that's probably part of his thinking when he revised the story, as you, you mentioned that he did and improved it. I agree with you. However, there are other things that I think he's not necessarily in conscious control of. And let me give you an example. The greatest, well, perhaps the greatest poem, poem that Poe wrote about the lost lover, the the bride who was so desired that, in fact, she died um, at the very beginning of the relationship is Annabelle Lee. And it begins like this. It was many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea than a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabel Lee. And this maiden she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. Now in this story, The Oval Portrait, the, the bride does not like the fact that her husband is paying attention much more to his painting than to her. But it says that she loved him and was obedient And so she sat as his model until eventually he drew all the life out of her face, out of her, and she died. Now, we find all of that in the the story that the narrator is reading in that book. And here's how the passage begins in which the book describes that particular painting, which we know as the Oval Portrait. She was a maiden of rarest beauty. Well, I might as well just read it. I mean, it's written as prose, but allow me to read it. She was a maiden of rarest beauty, 
and not more lovely than full of glee. And evil was the hour when she saw and loved and wedded the painter. He, passionate, studious, austere, and having already a bride in his art, she was a maiden of rarest beauty and not more lovely than full of glee. Right. Now, it's written as prose, but if you slow down and read it, it has exactly the same rhythm and rhyme scheme as Annabelle Lee. It's as if Poe is so imbued with the the semantic significance of the very mechanics of the English language that even when he's trying to write prose, he winds up capturing the 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 kind of English that he has used before for this powerful continuing theme, the loss of early love that can never be redeemed. And that perhaps is the wound, whether it's the wound for the narrator who also is the forgetful painter, or it's the wound for the narrator who shares it with that painter. What I think Poe is suggesting is that all of us have the possibility in our world, outside of the oval portrait, of having hope, some beautiful early love that it's gone forever and that we can regret forever. In that sense, the oval portrait, the story, comes out of its pages and into our life. I, I love it. There is a there is a um, another aspect that when you read this story many many times, as I have done, you come to appreciate. Um, <laughs> I love Poe is is good with humor. I don't know that this is necessarily supposed to be humorous, but I think it's just wonderful. Um, in that description from the from the book, right, the book he's reading, um, there is that repetition. Uh, exactly described the exact same way. It's almost as if reading down the page, he's missed a line and gone back and reread the same line. But this is a short story published in many magazines, many books. It's not a mistake. But it, it's a mistake, perhaps, on the part of the of the man, the unreliable narrator, lying wounded in bed, perhaps with a fever, Um saying that exact same line about how she was, right? Not more, what was it? Not more happy than full of glee? Not more lovely than full of glee. Right, not more lovely than full of glee. Comes, that's her description, twice. And notice that they're double negatives. But in addition, this description of how she is, <laughs> it's so funny. The description of the, the room and the paintings from the first page um, together with an unusually number of very spirited modern paintings. <laughs> and, of course, in the final uh, section, she is becoming dispirited. <laughs> That's the word. And it makes you start thinking about all the other paintings in that book and all the other paintings that have been painted on those walls that are very modern and very spirited. It's as if Every painting has killed someone, drawn from them the very life, and placed it on the wall. And you can see from a story like this, where Oscar Wilde, who was a big fan of this story, 
could take that tiny premise and grow it into a novel. Indeed. That's a lovely insight, Jesse. The portrait of Dorian Gray is not the portrait. It's the picture of Dorian Gray. Yes. But it is a portrait that is up in that attic. Indeed. It's up at the top. It's in the attic in, in Gray's home. Absolutely. The, the, the attention that Poe gives us to this, the, the possible conjoined meanings of words like spirited and dispirited is everywhere. I would point out that we're told when the narrator first gets up into that turret room that he sees um, all of these paintings that depended upon the walls. Mm -hmm. That word depend has a double meaning. It means, of course, in the 19th century, hanging from. They Mm -hmm. depended upon the walls. But in fact, it's the Gothic environment itself Mm -hmm. that creates these the possibility of these portraits, which, as you say, each one may have cost a life. Indeed, the reflection of the other ornaments in the room are the costs of life as well. Armorial trophies bedecked with them, manifold and multiform armorial trophies. Those are the sigils and the shields and the uh, suits of armor from all the previous life takings that bedeck this ancient pile. It's it's such a rich atmosphere for a story. And it, it, it's, uh, some say it's his shortest, one of his shortest short stories. I think it's also one of his best. I agree completely. Another day, another time, we will pursue much more to say. 